The Pinball Network is online. Launching Silverball Chronicles. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited. I hope this isn't a goddamn train wreck because um, I wouldn't be able to hear the end of it from Zach if it turns out bad. Well, if it is, then then it's it's great, right? Isn't that what people want? They want train wrecks. Hello, everyone out there in pinball land. This is David Dennis, and this is the Silver Ball Chronicles. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ron Hallett. What's up, fella? Hello. Good evening. As always, we're just starting. I'm not, I haven't always been here. We're just, we're just starting here. You, you are a big get for me. I'm very new to this hobby, and to bring somebody like the one and the only... Ron Hallett, one of the most experienced podcasters out there, to carry me through this. I think this is going to end up great. Wow. I, I don't know what to say. That. I've never been introduced like that before. Well, you are the star, and I'm the support here. No, no, and... no, no. David is the star of the show. I am simply a, um, what's it, like a fact checker. That's I, right. I was there. I've been, in, I've been here so long, I can tell you because I was actually there. What have you been up to, Ron, recently? I've been working long hours, unfortunately, mm. and dealing with snow and ice. Yes. Which you know all about, too, because we're both in the Northeast. Yes. I'm in the middle of a snowstorm, actually, at the moment. So um, if, uh, if I need you to send me up some supplies for safety and some road salt, I'll reach out for sure. We know all about that here in upstate New York. But um, I've been... Just kind of chilling. Going to be working on selling a couple of games, making some more room. That's good. That's good. You've got some tournaments coming up. Uh, yes, we have some tournaments coming up. Um, did you qualify for nationals? Of course not. I did not qualify uh, for nationals. <laughs> what are nationals? What are nationals? I hear that that happens all the time, and I can watch uh, Steve Bowden play in it. That's 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 true. So what, what, what are we all about, David? So when the Pinball Network first started, they were looking for some content. And, and I thought there was a space in the pinball podcasting market for something um, not so current event space, something more historical. So I started doing a little bit of research here and there, and I found that pinball history is, is pretty interesting because there's a lot of amazing characters out there. Um, do you have a couple of characters that we could uh, reference there? I do voices of, of um, I don't know, like, hey, let's see here. If I were to do Stewie, I mean, Family Guy is an actual game. I could do that. I could try to do, like, you know, Python, Angelo, or something like that. But people don't know who that is yet. Yeah, the idea is we don't want to be too inside baseball. We're going we're gonna to take this as being somebody's first experience into sort of some of the characters of pinball. Who are these interesting people? What is their history? But going beyond that, what are some of the machines they worked on? What are what are some of the quirks of those machines? And we're going to really deep dive into a lot of rabbit holes here. So if that doesn't sound like the podcast for you, you can always just flip over to the regular flagship program here, The Pinball Show. Yes, but you'll want to stay here. So this is going to be more for, we're going to try to avoid a lot of 
insider stuff. This is more educational. Like if you're a newbie and you have no idea who Steve Ritchie is or his, his, oh, did I just give it away? But if you have no idea who Steve Ritchie is or Python Angelo or any pinball personalities or any games or the manufacturers or, or no idea, you're just getting into this crazy hobby. This is going to be your stop right here at the Silverball Chronicles. One thing that I really want to draw everybody's attention to is we want interaction with our audience. Ron and I are going to add bits and pieces here of all of your comments, complaints, and questions from our mailbag, and we can be reached at silverballbag at gmail.com. We're going to cover things from the basics all the way up to some more advanced stuff. Ron, this is our first podcast together. We haven't done this together before. Um, so it's going to take us, I think, a little bit of time to grow as a team, as it always does for most podcasts. I haven't even met you. That's right. And, um, you know, not many people have met me because I'm hidden up in eastern Canada, right on the coast, right above Maine. And I don't make it out much. I have two kids under five, and I guess going to the bar and playing pinball isn't really cool anymore and drinking on weeknights. Thanks, Obama. So you get to stay home and talk about pinball history instead. So I actually have a history degree. I was always a bit of a researcher, but that's not actually my background. I'm actually a retirement planner. I do investments. I do insurance. I'm, I'm in the financial industry. I wear a suit and tie at least twice a week. So this is kind of a fun outlet. And I am in IT, as are a lot of pinheads I meet. It seems to be a very high percentage of pinheads or in the IT field. I think it's generally nerds, right? Nerds tend to nerds. fall into yep. the IT spot. 100% agree. I can almost guarantee that if you and I uh, sat down and chatted, you'd be able to go through all the rules of games and a bunch of different things. I am very bad at that. I'm more like uh, like a Zach Many. I could tell you how great the art is and how much I enjoy the screen, but I'm not going to get into the, the intricacies of code. I'm going to leave that to you on the go forward. Oh, we're in trouble then. I'm known as the guy that doesn't know anything about code. <laughs> well, perfect. That'll fit right in. That'll be great. So, uh, Ron, I just want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Dwight Sullivan's Code. Dwight Sullivan's Code. If you don't understand it, good. You're probably too dumb to play it anyway. He made monsters for you, and you still don't like it. Screw you. Hey, I like monsters. Yeah, there we go. We got always have some wonderful sponsors on this podcast. I think I'm the only person who likes monsters. So let's just dive into the topic here. This man is nicknamed the King of Flow, the best-selling pinball designer of all time, my favorite designer, and the reason why you know, or will know, what Meniere's disease is. Of course, I'm talking about Steve Ritchie. What's your first memory of Steve Ritchie, Ron? My first memory of Steve Ritchie is meeting him at the 2004 Pinball Expo, when at the banquet, he, he arrived to the banquet late, came up to the table I was sitting at and said, uh, can I sit here? And everyone was like, oh, sure. And he sat at our table. So that was pretty cool. Was this a buffet? Yes, it was a buffet. That's great. What does Steve Ritchie eat at a buffet? I don't remember. Oh. It was so long ago. He seems like he's all meat. He's no potatoes. He's no vegetables. That guy, he's going right for the guy that carves the ham, and he's eating all just all ham. Someone at our table asked him, what's a dream theme? that you would want to design that you haven't done yet. And you know what he said? I'd love to know. A pirate theme. Ooh. 
which is funny because it was one year before Pirates of the Caribbean came out, the stern one, which he didn't do. He didn't do it. So Steve Ritchie seems like a troll. He seems like he loves to poke fun. He's almost like uh, he's almost like the kind of guy that loves to poke fun at everybody around him and the industry in general. And I, I respect that. Yeah, looking at it. Looking back at it years later, I think he was just a troll. That's right. He was trolling us because they would have already known they were doing it by then because it was literally out the next year. So my first memory uh, of Steve Ritchie was uh, T2. So I'm I'm much younger than you. I'm in my mid-30s. And uh, I used to play T2 when we would travel from my province, New Brunswick, into our vacation province, Prince Edward Island. We'd travel on the ferry. And on that, there was a T2. And I would love to grab the gun handle. I'd love to shoot the ball across the play field. I'd double flip for about two seconds and lose the ball. It was amazing. Now, of course, at the time, I had no idea that there was a designer and a teams behind it and how much effort and how much thought went into building T2. But that's sort of the first memory of pinball, and it just happens to be Steve Ritchie, our topic today. So that would be the first game you ever played of his, Terminator 2. It's the first pinball machine I ever played, actually. And that was because in 91, 92, there was nothing bigger than T2. And to be able to lock down a license like that, I mean, who's who's going to get it? It's going to be the guy who's the best-selling pinball designer of all time. And... One thing's for sure, we're going to touch on T2 in our next Steve Ritchie episode, which will be further down the road as we get a few of these in. So one of the things that, was that I was looking at is I really wanted to get some quotes from people. So I reached out on uh, the Pinball Enthusiasts Facebook group, and I said, can you give me some things that come to mind when I say Steve Ritchie? So here are a couple of great quotes. Some of these are pretty quality quotes, and some of them make sense. One of them was, give me your money. My childhood nemesis. Another fellow, he said, Steve Ritchie, bow to the master. The last one, who can pass up a game with the best flow designer of all time? Flow, that's something we'll get into when we start talking about the evolution and the design of Steve Ritchie's feel on the play field. Are you a flow type of player? 100%. You love flow mostly. I love flow. The majority of my collection are, is still Steve Ritchie games. My first game I ever got was a Black Knight. Wow. So I'm all about kinetics, ball flow. I'm all about the shots. And that's really what flow is. And that's where he gets the name the King of Flow because he, he sort of pioneered that style. Now, flow, I think, probably came a little bit later into Steve Ritchie's career. And of course, we'll take a deeper dive in on the later bits of Steve's career in a following podcast. Let's get let's let's get going with the early biography. Yeah, so Steve Ritchie's early biography. I've got some of the the notes and our research here and I'll just zip through a couple of these. So Stephen Scott Ritchie was born February 13th, 1950 in San Francisco, California. At age 5, they moved to Pacifica, California, a place I've never heard of. His first experience in pinball was a local bowling alley at 7. His parents were in a bowling league at Sea Bowl, and they would give Steve a dollar, and he'd play 10-cent games all night while they played. At 10 or 11, while playing at the bowling alley, a tech came in to service one of the machines. A curious Steve Ritchie spoke with the tech, or as he said in a quote that I found, I was looking at it, and he said, if you want to see it, you can get closer and look into the cabinet. And there were all these relays and tons of wire and all this stuff and these shiny chrome-plated mechanisms. Then the guy looked at me and said, you know, this is a Gottlieb, the Cadillac of the industry. That was about 1960 or 61. 
Ron, was Gottlieb the Cadillac of the industry in 6061? Uh, definitely, yes. They were the Cadillac of the industry. Now, are you saying that because they were as heavy as a Cadillac, these old machines from the 60s? No. They were they were the most profitable. They made the most games. They sold the most games. They were the Cadillac of the industry. They certainly had it all, right? They had, like, some awesome art. When you look at things like Sing Along, an old game from the 60s, it has some really odd art, and it's got some cool, fun mechanisms that just keep putting those quarters in. So uh, Steve often describes his early years. He always says he's a, in all of these old interviews that I've seen, he says he's a bit of a troublemaker. He was always very inventive at a young age. Um, He tells a story in a couple of old podcasts from years ago where when he was an inventor as a child, he would he would ride his bicycle and he'd create parachutes where he'd throw the parachute behind his bicycle as they went down hills. Uh, I don't know why he'd do that, but kids are kids, right? That they are. So he, of course, loved rock music after hearing the Beatles. As soon as he heard that, he dove right into the Beatles and right headfirst into making music. And in fact, he was actually in a band who opened for the Doobie Brothers. What's your uh, what's your favorite Doobie Brothers song? Maybe China Grove. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I have a Doobie Brothers album, and the name escapes me at the moment. Damn it. It's one of their live ones. Uh, Doobie Brothers Live? That's no. probably it. That's probably okay. it. Steve Ritchie has Meniere's disease, which is a disorder that affects the inner ear. Um, you know, Ron, do you have anything on Meniere's disease? Uh, I actually have a friend who has this, yes. It it basically what it does, it, it gives you this sensation of, of spinning causes balance issues as as it progresses it will actually you will start having less and less balancing issues but your hearing will start to go so that's it's it's genetics right is that what they say usually uh, i believe so yeah okay so it's, it's not a good thing so it's it's pretty interesting that that you know and we'll get into this i'd say further in some of our other steve ritchie podcasts is that sound and music and and that auditory feedback is always so big in steve ritchie's games but but his his hearing is you know it is failing right so that's that's crazy that that's such a focus of his even though that that's lack of a better word a handicap that he has yes when i first met him in 2004 he was already wearing the uh hearing aids wow and that was 15 years ago so yeah, so I, you know, I listened to uh, uh, the Special When Lit Pinball Podcast, their episode with Steve Ritchie, and he spoke to them and said, basically, you know, if I'm in a loud room, I can't, I can't hear anything or anybody. So it's pretty amazing that that's such a, a part of his, um, his pinball machines. It was in 1968 to 1972 that he was stationed in Vietnam and Alaska in the U.S. Coast Guard. He was a tech who made wiring harnesses for uh, radios and the like. I guess that would probably come in handy considering where he would move to in the industry. After returning from the Coast Guard, uh, Steve quickly became a starving musician, and he really needed a job. So in 1974, he went to Atari Incorporated to become employee number 50 on the assembly line of the electromechanical tech area for wiring harnesses. That makes sense, right, Ron? Because Atari was based in Sunnyvale, California, which is Steve Ritchie's home home state. That is correct. They were a video game company primarily. Of course, they came up with Pong. And at some point in the mid-70s, they started dipping their toe in the water of pinball. Yeah, they were all about the quarters, right? If you could bring in a quarter, you know, they had, I would say, in some cases, the the arcade game really locked down. They had that market at the arcade pretty much in hand with a few others, like uh, maybe Midway. But they really, really spent all their time trying to grab quarters. And there's another half to that which was pinball. You got to remember at the time in the mid 70s, you had Bally doing a lot of their licensed pins. 
and they were the, the pinball started selling more. It, it 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 got to the point where you had pinballs that were actually selling like ten thousand plus units. So they wanted a piece of that. What do you think he learned in the manufacturing line, working actually with his hands building pinball machines? Uh, I think he learned what it takes to build a whitewood, which you would put to good use later on. And another thing, I think just knowing the way, and we'll get into this probably in a later episode, but he, even from an early period, he would always peruse the assembly lines when they were building his games. He was always very hands-on about how his games were being built. He always wanted to be there. He's, he's always been very passionate about like when they're actually being built, making sure things get done right, if there's problems, getting them taken care of. So I think that probably was the start of his being very hands-on because originally he was one of those workers. He was he was building harnesses. He was also, I believe, he also built textures at one point. Here are some comments, actually, uh, from Steve about his time at Atari. When I went to Atari to look for work, I was the starving guitar player in a rock band. From the lobby of Atari, I could hear blasting rock and roll provided in stereo throughout the factory. Many beautiful ladies were running around, and it sure as hell looked like fun to me. Yeah, it's, um, I'll tell you, Steve loves to tell that story. Uh, yes, he does. I've heard it many times. Continuing, they finally let me work in the engineering area. I got an offer to be the first employee in their pinball division, new venture at the time. I worked in the prototype lab, and I was blown away by pinball. I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like uh, to walk into a manufacturing plant like that in the mid-70s and sort of see this interesting kind of fun game, the the melding of uh, the physical and and the, the movement of the ball, your your thoughts and and. and ideas. I mean, I bet you when he says I was blown away by pinball, I think he probably really was. So I guess what we'll do is we'll deep dive Atari uh, and its foray into pinball in another episode. So we'll go deeper into Atari later on in some other episode. But um, Steve certainly had a lot of issues at Atari, and one of which was his boss uh, at the time. And it really appeared that there was a bit of an elitist culture at at Atari or or uh, it really, I think, irked Steve that he just sort of came in as a line worker and could notice right away because he has obviously he has some passion and some uh, an innovative mind that it really bothered him sort of the way things worked at Atari. Yeah, because as Steve said, I started a design of my own, which I worked on at home only. I asked my boss if I could bring it in and he said, no way. Pinball design is for college graduates only, industrial design degrees. I worked on it for one year. I was super pissed that my boss was such a dick. And that's true. At Atari, they had this policy that you couldn't you couldn't do the design unless you had an engineering degree, which is funny because an engineering degree doesn't necessarily mean you know how to design a game, as anyone who's seen a lot of the Atari pinballs can tell you. Yeah, well, I can certainly tell you that uh, just because you know how to drive a train, that has nothing to do with actually building a pinball machine. That is true. You no-sold me on that. You didn't even give me a... All right, go ahead. Read the next one. One day, I became frustrated as hell and went to see Nolan Bushnell, who, if you don't know, Nolan Bushnell was the founder and president of Atari. Nolan looked at my drawing and asked me if I did it all at home. I said, yes. I asked him if I could build it up and make it work. He said, certainly. You can have the cubicle next to Gary Slater. No one on Earth was happier than me. The game was Airborne Avenger, 
Eugene Jarvis programmed the game and we became good friends. That's that's an amazing story, uh, especially for me, somebody who's younger, that everything is so formal now, the way that you request a job or the way you apply for jobs or, or things like that. So I find this absolutely fascinating that he could go to a Nolan Bushnell and just tell him, hey, you know, I was kind of doing this on my own on the left uh, when I was at home. And, uh, you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, just grab a cubicle next to Gary over there. And, uh, you know, over here's the microwave and uh, here's your increase in salary. Like, that is just crazy to think of that. Yeah, I heard him. He's the times I've heard him tell the story. It was just like Nolan Bushnell was walking down the hall and he's like, hey, hi, I'm, I'm Steve Ritchie. I'm doing this thing. And he was like, sure, go ahead. What was it like before there was an HR department, Ron? Um, good question. I do know one thing. Do you know who else worked at Atari the time that Steve Ritchie worked there? Uh, no. Who who uh, who else worked at Atari? Steve Jobs. Like the the Apple Steve Jobs. The Apple Steve Jobs. That's crazy. And you, and you know what Steve Ritchie said about him? That he was the nicest person he had ever met. He was a dick and couldn't stand him. <laughs> I can imagine Steve Ritchie saying that. Oh yeah, Steve Jobs said yeah. It, it, what Steve said is. Um, Steve Jobs, well, there's too many Steves here. What Steve Ritchie said was Steve Jobs, he would work at night for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, Steve Wozniak. Yeah, the other the other guy at Apple. He's Steve too? Wow. Okay. So Steve Wozniak, uh, Steve Jobs' partner in crime, he would work his day job, and then he would come into Atari at night and work with Steve Jobs. So did he work with Steve Jobs, or did he do no, Steve he worked, Jobs' job? Well, yeah, who knows? That Wozniak basically carried Steve Jobs' whole career. At least on the tech side. But Nolan Bushnell loved it because he didn't have to pay Steve Wozniak. Oh, of course. True story. He loved him coming in. And another reason he had him work at night is because at that time, Steve Jobs did not like to shower. Oh, God. It was known to smell particularly bad. So that was another reason he had him working at night. That's amazing. All true stories, according to Steve Ritchie. Well, I mean, if Steve Ritchie said it, it has to be true. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's get into Airborne Avenger, the first game that Steve Ritchie did at his time at Atari. So uh, let's get into the stats. Well, I feel like I need something snappier than just saying the stats. I, I don't know. I guess we'll we'll figure something out. So Airborne Avenger, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll toss this in the show notes. Can you explain what the IPDB is, Ron? IPDB stands for Internet Pinball Database, and that's IPDB.org. They have listings of most every game and pictures and cool little factoids and sometimes software, manuals, things like that. It's it's like an encyclopedia of pinball machines. Very good. So we, we use this as a bit of a resource for our stats. And if you want to you know follow along or you want to take a look, uh, that's where we get a lot of our information about the machines specifically beyond sort of the regular research. So Let's start it with Airborne Avenger. It's an adventure combat sort of spacey plane theme. It's from September 1977. It's a solid state machine, uh, which is an Atari Generation 1 is what it was named. It's a wide body machine. There was 3,420 produced. The software was done by Eugene Jarvis, and you'll know his name because he wrote uh, the software for Space Shuttle, High Speed, Firepower, and Gorgar from Williams. The artwork was done by George Opperman, and he's only done the uh, artwork for Atari. And as I said, I'll just toss the IPDB link in our show notes for a reference. Ron, have you played Airborne Adventure? I have played Airborne Adventure. Played it once. 
didn't really make a huge impression on me. I, it didn't. It didn't make a bad impression. Like this is terrible, but it wasn't like, oh my god, this is awesome. It was just kind of. Eh. It was. It was. It was. It was like the Stranger Things of its day. Oh, very good. Oh, oh, too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. And some background for Ataris. Every single one of their games was a wide body. They only did wide bodies. So what? What's a wide body, Ron? Wide body meaning it's wider than. The, the average game. The thing about the wide bodies is it depended on the manufacturer how wide wide body was. Ah, uh, so like a so like a Williams wide body would be different than a Atari. Some wide of body. them are wider and some of them are longer. The ballys the ballys are wider, but they're the same length, like that the the playfield glass. But like the old Stern ones, which we'll get into at some point in another show, they weren't quite as wide. And then and someone like Gottlieb would have ones that were wide, then they had ones that were really wide. So you, there could be a whole episode on wide bodies. But the other thing I wanted to bring up about this particular game, and Atari's in general, the one thing that Steve Ritchie brought to the table, and one of his pet peeves, is a lot of Atari games have really bizarre flipper arrangements. They almost looked one of the best explanations I've ever heard or descriptions of an Atari game is most of the Atari games look like prototypes. They look like bizarre prototypes that were never made, but they were. They were actual production games. And one of Steve Ritchie's things was he wanted a regular, I guess it would be called Italian bottom, which that could be a whole other episode, but just a standard flipper layout on the bottom. Your two flippers, your in lanes, and your out lanes. And he was very, and in all the games he has ever done, he has stayed true to that, and including this one. And you'll see that when we get to his other, his other uh, Atari game and all his other games. But, but Atari was not known for this. They were known for really weird-looking layouts that maybe weren't necessarily fun to shoot because most of them were designed by engineers and not necessarily game designers. So did they? So they did. Did they go with a wide body because they thought there'd be more stuff on the playfield and it would be, you know, more exciting or interesting to see? That is a good question. So if somebody knows that, they can, you can write us at the silver ball bag at gmail dot com and let us know why Atari had to make all these wide bodies. So one thing's for sure, I I got to point this out. Atari had some amazing art. Like, I, I would say the coolest thing about this machine is that back glass. It's got, like, it's got, like, Dolph Lernigan. He's just this chiseled, perfect square jaw. He's got some laser cannon thing. He's got these sweet sunglasses. There's, like, planets. Who, it's very cool. Who is the guy? Dolph who? It's like, it's like Dolph Lernigan. Remember the guy from... You mean Dolph Lundgren? Dolph Lundgren, right. I thought that's, that's how it was said. <laughs> you mean brutal. I must break you? Yeah, yeah, this is this is why you're here, Ron, to point out the fact that I have no idea how to say names. And someone will write in and say I said it wrong, but I've always heard it Dolph Lundgren. These these Ataris, they had they had the boards in the bottom under the playfield, right? Yes, a slight oversight there. That wasn't probably that's not the best idea because what would happen is they, they didn't put any kind of real shielding over the stuff either. So like components would maybe fall off the bottom of the play field and just fall right on the board shorting it oh god that's horrible and they also would put the the score display instead of putting it on the back glass like every other manufacturer they had it on the apron so they had these humongous huge aprons and the score would be actually it was digital but it'd be on the apron where no one could see it other than the player 
Wow. Mm -hmm. So it was originally thought there was only about 350 of these things produced, but Steve Ritchie had once confirmed um, to IPDB that uh, about 3,420 were sold, uh, which would certainly put Airborne Avenger among one of the higher sellers that Atari ever had, actually. Uh, I would agree with Steve Ritchie on this. There's definitely more than 350 made. I mean, it's it's not it's rare, but it's not super. I, I have seen them at shows. So Joe wrote into the silver ball bag, just like you can, and he said, "Seems like a good game for 800 bucks. Seems like a pretty cheap piece of history." So the current pin side estimated value of the game is about 740 to 860. That seems pretty low for a piece of history, though, isn't it, Ron? It's an Atari. <laughs> <laughs> if it breaks you yeah and i mean they're they're rarer games as far as is like who knows how to fix an atari board i know the preeminent guy as far as atari repair at least from 10 years ago I'm, he's still around is john robertson okay he's in canada he's a fellow fellow, fellow canadian like yourself oh, but he's really? on the other side he's on like west coast Oh. I think he's in Vancouver or something like that. He doesn't that. like snow at all. <laughs> but he was always back in the back in the day, in the old days of news groups, oh my god, before Pinside or any of that, if you had Atari questions, you would always go to him. He would also be he had a lot of the parts. So if you have an airborne Avenger, seek him out. Because you may need him to fix your game. There you go. If you've dropped the balls off of the playfield right onto the board on the bottom, mm. he's your man. Yeah. Yeah, very good, very good. So um, Atari really knew art gathered coins. So their arcade division on the video side certainly knew that art gathered coins. So, you know, George Opperman is probably one of the greatest assets that they had. And he's the fellow that did all of the art for most of these Atari machines. And, you know, it's sort of like Stern today, right? They know that artwork will drive you into that machine, even though, let's face it, the Atari's not the best players. No, but th their artwork across their entire company was tremendous because they had not just the video games and the pinballs. They also had, when they started making the, um, the VCS, probably better known as the Atari 2600, Yes. Most people yes. don't know the original name of it was just the Atari VCS video computer system. I think it was sold exclusively through Sears originally or something wow. like that. But it, it got the 2600 later. But if you remember the cartridges, they would come in these, the packaging, the art on the packaging was tremendous. They made the games look like the most incredible things ever. Well, I'll, t I'll tell you when it comes to, to me, when you look at something like a, like a missile command, Man, oh man, that side art on the side of that with the buddy with his helmet and the missiles going off, that's, you know, that's cool. That's what draws you in to do the coin because when you get up there and it's just a couple of lines and some dots and some blinking, you know, that's not what's bringing the quarter. It's the art that's bringing the quarter. And Atari certainly knew that. So here we have a, a quote from somebody you may know. This is Dennis Creasel. Dennis Creasel owned a Superman. And here's what he says about his uh, his Superman. And this is Dennis Creasel, of course, of the Eclectic Gamers podcast, and he will be on the Pinball Show. That's right, the flagship basis. show. Yes, the flagship show. We were told to promote this or we would be fired immediately. That's right. Okay, maybe not. Dennis says, thoughts on Superman? Awesome art package. Aside from Steve Ritchie, it was George Opperman who was their greatest asset. I think he worked on every produced Atari pins art except Hercules, and it shows. 
this is really, I think, another relationship we can dive into here is Eugene Jarvis and Steve Ritchie. You know, they certainly had a very close relationship. Eugene Jarvis, of course, being the programmer from Atari where Steve had met him. And they'll follow along throughout their whole uh, tenure together in pinball. And Eugene Jarvis, of course, one of the... I would say, most respected individuals uh, when it comes to programming in the industry. We'll, we'll get a little deeper into him here in a few moments. Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis might be one of the first, geez, it might be the first designer, programmer, super teams when you think about it. The super teams, did they, did they have like, uh, did they have uniforms? <laughs> well, everyone thinks you, you had like Steve Ritchie, Dwight Sullivan, that made a ton of games together. You know, you, you have you have certain these super teams. You have like the Brian Eddy with Lyman Sheets, with your Attack from Mars and your Medieval Madnesses. They're probably they have to be the first, don't they? Because Solid State just started. Yeah, surely. So you have your first generation of programmers coming in. They they literally that they would have to be the first kind of super team. I, I would well, say. things would get so complicated when you move into Solid State. The the way you're you'd have to you know bend your mind to come up with so many different ways to get pinball to change beyond sort of that old electromechanical or old reels and, and counters. When you have a computer doing those things, you know, that's, I, th- I think the the teams would have to come much closer together now. And, and this would probably be the birth of, of probably one of the best teams to ever come out of pinball to work together. Yeah, I think a lot of it would be the designer saying, I want to do this. Can you do this? And the programmer saying, uh, let me try. And then like a couple hours later, okay, I got it working. There's a lot of so what is guy. what does Eugene Dar- Jarvis do now, Ron? I, I don't know. Eugene Jarvis is the founder and CEO of Raw Thrills, probably one of the oh, few okay. video game companies that actually makes money. So yeah, so played, he's there. The arcades in, yep. in like entertainment centers. They're right? in the entertain. They make the big games. Like they have the big. They have like a Walking Dead game, a Jurassic Park. The Jurassic game, Park one, yeah. Yeah, the Terminator game. Yep, and he's also Josh Sharp's boss. Wow, Josh Sharp. Josh Sharp of the IFPA, the International Flipper Pinball Association. Yep. And on a future show, maybe we'll get into more tournament stuff, but we don't want to lose too many people in the audience. Uh, nobody, nobody cares about tournament pinball. That's right. So after the success of Airborne Avenger, Richie earned the license at Atari to do Superman the Pinball based on the comic book. And uh, the final stages of production of the table, Steve actually received an offer from Williams. Other interesting factoids about Superman is it, at least according to Steve, it was some of the, the most Whitewoods he ever did for a game or close to it. He did a ton of Whitewoods that he was not happy with. It took a lot of Whitewoods to get the game where he wanted to. And if you don't know what a Whitewood is, again, for our, our audience, a Whitewood is basically your, it, it's, you have no art, you just have a piece of wood and you're putting the play field elements around on the play field and just shooting it and seeing how yeah, they're sort of just drilling the holes in yeah. throwing throwing some things in there some flippers see, and some mechanics yep see how it yeah. plays and he had to do a ton of them for this game and again he was working with his buddy eugene jarvis and this is for the again this is the comic book theme this is not the movie even though the movie was just out the previous year so what, what i find actually pretty interesting about the whole superman at Atari thing is that that machine actually didn't come out until Steve ended up at Williams, which is kind of strange. That is correct. And we'll get into that later. He actually had three games in the Playmeter top 10 simultaneously, including one for a company he didn't work for anymore at that point. I don't think anyone will ever do that again. 
Yeah, well, certainly not. No, of course not. In the final stages of production of the table, when Steve received his offer from Williams, he was about 27. And I'll tell you what, when somebody gives you a call and says, hey, I'm from Chicago, I'm offering you a job if you come over here to jump ship to another company, you know, that's pretty crazy. So rumor has it that actually Steve said, well, you know, I can't just get up and go to Chicago just, you know, on a whim. So they actually said that they would come to see them. The Williams team would actually fly from Chicago all the way to California to see Eugene Jarvis and Steve Ritchie to sort of broker a deal. They really wanted him, obviously. Yeah, so it's it's funny that he's sort of made one game. Um, he's, he's more or less working on his second game with Eugene Jarvis, uh, which would eventually become Superman. And th- sort of the word is kind of out already, right? Like, hey, there's this, you know, Steve Ritchie, there's this guy, Eugene, they're over at Atari, they're looking pretty good. So, so it's, it's interesting, right? Because the industry is fairly small for the most part, right? There was only a handful of companies, coin ops and, and conventions were all fairly small. So, so obviously you'd bump into each other, I, I would say fairly often, but it's so cool that just immediately this sort of young upstart um, and what you call them a super team are starting to get their names out there. It's so much, in fact, that the bigwigs at Williams in Chicago are calling California and trying to poach them. Yeah, and you got to remember at the time, and, and still to this day, Chicago is the heart and soul of pinball. That's where all the manufacturers were even then. Gottlieb, Bally, Williams were all in Chicago. Atari was kind of like this upstart, the video game company trying to do pinball. Yeah, they they were just trying to diversify their you know their portfolio, right? They weren't really trying to make a big a big splash. They were just trying to get the coin that was going into the Bally machine or a Gottlieb machine and into an Atari machine. And not to get ahead of ourselves, we'll back up a little bit and get to Superman. So Superman, also a wide body, was finally released in March of 1979 after Steve had already left Atari. Over uh, 3,420 produced. The software was by Eugene Jarvis. He stayed to the end of product. He stayed to the end of development. So he was there and finished the game up. Artwork yeah. again by George Opperman. And this was probably the best Atari game, I, I would say. Dennis Creasel of the Eclectic Gamers podcast and and the Pinball Network. He had one of these Ataris, uh, one of these Atari Supermans. And um, I, I would say he was quite pleased at the way it is. And, and when you open up their IPDB page, one of the coolest bits I think about IPDB is it's got these old flyers and these old sort of salesy um, items. They're, it cracks me up some of the some of the wording that they have on these because you can tell that they're really laying it on thick. Like super earnings for Superman or something like that. Right. Exactly. I'm not even looking at it. I just made that up. It probably says something like that. Yeah, so the the most famous superhero in Century flashes into the world of pinball. It's Superman, the pinball game. Like, it's just silliness, right? Like, it, I love this stuff. In a world where Superman plays pinball. That's, that, yeah, exactly, right? Like, that's, the I think, one of the best parts about IPDB. And, it, and it's also funny because you can look at the way sort of marketing was at that time, like we're marketed so differently now in the way that, you know, everything is thrown at us in all ways. Now, machines still have flyers, but it becomes sort of less about the art and more about kind of what's going on in the play field or what are the potentials. But it was all about earnings and supercharging. And it was always just cracks me up to read some of this stuff. The other thing about Superman, uh, per Eugene Jarvis, one of the things that he, he states he invented 
was the idea of a flashing light, which we all know now. Like something's flashing, shoot like this. Like the flashing light? The flashing light, shoot this. And this flashes, shoot this. Oh, very good. The inventor of chase the blinking light. Before he came around, I mean, on an EM, you had just had you had just had lights. Things didn't really. You, you had blinker lights, like in the back glass and things, but you didn't of have course. anything that was flashing at you, like here, yeah, shoot here, shoot here. And um, according to Eugene Jarvis, he well, actually, I won't say I won't use the language he, he used when <laughs> the interview I saw about it. He said he invented that. Very cool, very cool. Well, if I ever meet Eugene Jarvis, I will shake his hand because he is the only reason I know how to play pinball whatsoever is just to chase a blinking light because some of the time, I have no idea what's going on. Thank you, Eugene. One thing that I found particularly interesting is when Williams was sort of in in conversation, let's say, with, with Steve Ritchie and I would say on the periphery, Eugene Jarvis, um, a lot of people look at Williams, I would say maybe with rose-colored glasses, right? Williams in the mid-70s is not the Williams we would know in the 80s and sort of the rebirth in the 1990s. Isn't that correct? That's correct. I mean, at the time, you had you had Gottlieb, who were still probably number one. In the, but in the mid-70s, Bally started going for the licenses, games like Wizard, Captain Fantastic, paying for licensing, they started to make these games that were selling like 10,000 units. Williams was probably a third at the time. Yeah, so so you I guess you could say sort of the the invention of solid state or or what would become computer boards inside of pinball machines. That that sort of arms race had drastically sort of changed the industry at that time. That is true. Gottlieb yeah. was well, this will be a future episode, but Gottlieb made some decisions that would Haunt them for years to come. And they went from number one to, I would say, a distant third. Yes. And, and I would say, you know, Bally and Stern Electronics, they really were able to sort of, you know, change the tide in their favor. But this sort of reinvention of the industry, this this revision of uh, of their entire business model, you could say that Williams was really dedicated to take a big stab. And one of those things was to collect talent, right? That is correct. He wasn't the only talent. Other talented people who we'll probably cover in another episode, but people like people like Eugene Jarvis, people like Larry DeMar, another programmer just fresh out of college, Barry, Barry Osler. These are people who shaped the industry for Williams in the upcoming years. Yeah, Williams in the mid to late 70s was not the Williams that they would become. And according to Steve, this is quoting Steve. Steve says, Eugene and I used to go to the Time Zone Arcade and check out the pinballs and everything else. We used to laugh at their games, being Williams. It, it was like they drew half a game, held up a mirror, and then drew the other half. It was totally symmetrical. On the other hand, Bally and Gottlieb were making great stuff. Really, we actually said that. They need us. Oh, that's how cool is that, that, that at that point, Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis going to an arcade, sort of checking out the competition and basically going like, man, these, these Williams guys, like, they need us. That's, that's amazing. I could totally see him saying that, too. Yeah, so I mean when they met with Williams, they wanted to Williams wanted to change everything. They wanted to revamp their whole business and they wanted to be super sleek. They wanted to be the company of the future, Steve would say. And in my opinion, Williams probably needed to change to survive, not necessarily just to 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 innovate to increase sales. I think they probably still needed this to survive. What do you think? Uh, it all depends on I mean they still they're still making pinballs. I mean, they haven't, they hadn't gone into the video game thing yet. 
which that's a whole other discussion. And Eugene Jarvis will be would be a huge part of that discussion. But as far as I mean, they were making games like Phoenix. One of the I think that that might have been their first one of their first solid state games. They had things like World Cup, not World Cup soccer, but World Cup, Hot Tip. That's kind of along the. That's what they were making at the time. Yeah. So in, in fact. There's a couple of interviews that I've listened to in doing the research here where, where Steve actually joked about Hot Tip, that that, that was what they were bringing to the table. Um, and you're facing things like a Captain Fantastic from Bally um, or uh, something from Gottlieb that doesn't suck. That's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. And, and, anywho, one of those good Gottliebs that people were buying because they were the Cadillac of the industry, even though they didn't realize it was a bad game. Uh... I, I have to disagree with Steve here. I like Hot Tip. Okay, well, I guess there's an idiot in every crowd. Hey, it's a better game than Captain Fantastic. Sorry, it is. Doesn't have a better backlash though. Uh no, it doesn't. The horse biting another horse no, is like, come yeah. on. Yeah, you, you are correct. Because art is the only thing that matters in pinball. At this point, I mean, they're about they're getting you know they're they're tidying up spot uh, they're tidying up superman you know eugene still has to code this thing well well steve ritchie pulls the shoot he moves to chicago from california and steve ritchie would say that that he left atari very angry and scared and that he was actually worried about moving all the way to chicago from california but i'll tell you what he says that fear motivated him to produce a design. And that's when, and if, if Steve Ritchie is 100% truthful here, he drew his first game at Williams while he was flying from California to Chicago. Yeah, see, I've heard the same thing. He said uh, specifically he was drawing the loop shot to his first game at Williams, which would be... Flash. Flash. Very good. So you, you've played Flash, of course, right? I used to own a Flash, so yes. Yeah, there you go. So you're, you're a big Steve Ritchie guy. My, when, I, when I first entered the hobby about two years ago, I was like, I want to find a pinball machine. And I go on, uh, here in Canada, we use a thing called Kijiji, which is, I guess, like Craigslist, uh, but it has a nicer user interface. So I get on this, uh, this website, and I get looking around, and I see a Flash. And I did a little bit of research. Of course, it was overpriced, as as most used machines are out there nowadays. But what I did learn from that machine was that there are some very unique and very cool designs out there. And to think that this was Steve Ritchie's really third design, his first standard body design. And it's a machine that we'll get into in a minute that just says all of these firsts. Very, very cool. I didn't end up buying it. But uh, but I, I think at one time I would love to own a Flash. It's a good game. I cannot fault it in any way. Yeah. So let's um let's get into the stat. That sounds so boring. Um, how about uh let's flash into the stats. How about that, Ron? Oh yeah, that's so much better. <laughs> so Flash is a is a fantasy sort of God of Thunder theme. It was made in January 1979. It is a solid-state machine with the, from the Williams System 4 board set, which are the computer boards in the back. It's a standard body machine. It sold, okay, let's get this, 19,505 units. That is massive. That is Steve Ritchie's largest selling game. To think that he went from selling 3,500 machines to 19,505, that is that is a staggering number. Um, 
the sound on that machine and the software was done by Randy Pfeiffer. And, and basically, the only thing that he did in his career of note was Flash. And the artwork was by uh, Constantino. Constantino. Constantino and Janine Mitchell. And they've done a lot of Williams and Gottlieb art through the 80s and 90s. Man, oh man. Besides that name being uh, difficult to say, uh, you know, it's staggering to think that that Steve Ritchie's third game is the third biggest selling game of all time. Yeah, in a game of lots of firsts. What are, what are some of the firsts on there? What are, what, are, what are some of the firsts that this machine has done? Probably one of the biggest ones. It was the first machine that had the dynamic background sound, meaning a background sound that would change as you played the game. And in this case, it would just, it would rise in intensity. And it became pretty much standard of all games of that era. Everyone started adding that feature. So it's sort of like where there's like a tone or a noise and it builds and it builds and it builds builds and it builds as your points go up, right? It creates like this level of anxiety and excitement. So it was the first machine that didn't have just dinging and binging, right? Yes. And I think it's it, it, the way it works. I believe it all it does. It just cre- it keeps increasing intensity as you hit as you hit stuff. Very cool. And then it'll it'll loop. It'll go all the way up, and then it'll usually go back down. Very cool. Very cool. And this was also the first machine with flash lamps, which is why it gets the name Flash. And and what is a flash lamp in pinball terms? Flash lamp is a light that is extremely bright, and it will just it pulses. Because if you left it on, it would be extremely bright to, to look at, and it would burn out quickly. And Steve Ritchie saw these, I think it was a headlight? Yeah, it was like a taillight of a car. I'm trying to remember the story. Taillight car, and he's like, can we get that in a game? And they were able to get that in a game. It's used in the lightning bolts in Flash. Mm-hmm. So actually, it's it's pretty funny, because when you when you sit down and you play Flash now, and it's, I mean, it's a fairly antiquated game. It's got its challenge, but it's a bit different. If 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 you if you knock down the series of drop targets in the front, they drop down below the play field, and then all of a sudden there's like a lightning bolt kind of uh, insert, and all of a sudden that just sort of flashes really quickly. It's it's actually a bit anticlimactic uh, compared to the brightness of games now. Yeah, but at the time people it. were like, "Whoa! Like I just did something important." It was quite a simpler time. The thing is. Steve Ritchie originally had the idea for the background sound with Superman. Oh, okay, right. But management would not let him do it. They, that was probably another reason he left, because him and Eugene Jarvis had the, um, I think it was called the Echoplex. Okay, set up. okay. And, and it made a continuous background sound. It's something he wanted to do with Superman, but they wouldn't, it, it just, they wouldn't let him do it. So that's, that's one thing he was definitely going to put in Flash. So we talked about Atari, right, is that they were very sort of rigid and I call them maybe a bit elitist. Um, you know, that's pretty interesting stuff that, that hey, there, here's this thing. And I mean, would you say that one of the major reasons that Flash sold so many was because of this sort of anxiety inducing sound? 100% because no other game, no other game did it. Yeah. They'd set it apart from any other game at the time. It's also the first machine with a third flipper with a repeatable top loop and I mean, who doesn't love a repeatable top loop, really? Yeah, that was a Steve Ritchie. He wanted to do a game with the third flipper, the side flipper. And one of the things that bothered him, he didn't like how a lot of other games, there, there were a lot of other games with side flippers. Yeah, he, he, didn't, invent, he, didn't, he didn't invent, invent that. Flip. But like, say, Captain Fantastic, Steve, uses, Steve Ritchie would use that as an example. He didn't like where it was positioned. 
He yeah, wanted so he's just to position a series of targets. On the yeah, horizon. he wanted to position it in a way you could do more than just hit a target. You could do something with it. So on Flash, you can hit targets. You can sweep an entire three bank. You could also loop. And on a well, this, this is a prerequisite. On a uh, well, um, well-adjusted Flash, you can do the repeatable loop shot. It takes some tweaking, I found, to get it to work right most of the time. But yeah, well, I mean, the game's forty years old. That's true. But you, you can get a repeatable loop shot, which was just something like I'd love to see the first person who did that like two times and was like, yeah, well, whoa, whoa. I mean, I bet you that that it would take it would probably take a while before somebody kind of realized that you could do that. They also uh, Steve Ritchie, it said, did some design tweaks to the flipper lanes, the the in lanes, the way they come into the flippers, that they were just a little bit quicker, a little bit faster. And one thing that's, I mean, I would say kind of boring, but, but interesting nonetheless, is that this is the first machine that was a black cabinet. And that sort of became standard in the industry when it came to machines. And you see that a lot in the, I would say, in the Williams of the era. Yeah, they had the black, the black base with some kind of design on it. Not always the greatest designs. Some some better than others, but we'll get to those. So so Jerry wrote into the silver ball bag at gmail.com, just like you can, and he said, uh, Hi Randy, Ron, and Delightful Dave. Which are the best selling pinball machines ever? I can only think of the Adams family. So um okay, Jerry, uh I don't appreciate the name calling. Uh that's not very fair to myself and Ron here, but uh, I'll answer I your like, question. I like Randy Ron. I'll take that. Yes, he is right. Adam's family is, um, I would say, is it the second best or best? Uh, well, if you want to be really anal, you can get to things like uh, Ballyhoo, which is what Bally's named after, which sold, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 units. It's like uh, one of the earliest flipperless pinball, like tabletop pinball games. At the time, it was 8-Ball by Bally, yes. which had the, the infamous uh, back glass of the Fonz, who didn't give his likeness to that. No, it just, so, he just looked like the Fonz, but he wasn't the Fonz. Of course. It just had the, I mean, everybody had jackets like that and hair. And yeah, stuff. yeah. I mean, really, he was just a greaser. What was that, Bally what was learned that their book? lesson. They started actually paying book? for licenses after that. So Remember that book with the greasers? What was that book? Well, anyway, if you if you know what that book was that you read in high school that had the greasers, please send that in to silverballbag at gmail.com, and I'll read it in our next episode. If you look at uh, sort of the, the top sellers at the time, I mean, it must be pretty staggering um, to have a machine just like this right out of the gate. So Williams, what they really wanted to do, I would say Jack Mattel, who was then the VP of sales, he this is what they were looking for, right? They were looking – to reinvigorate the Williams brand, the pinball machines that they had. And and this is a prime example of just that, right? Like he must've been over the moon. Of course, when you see it sold 19,000, you're wondering like, why didn't they go for the extra thousand? Yeah. So uh, Steve Ritchie would say that towards the end of the run of flash, he asked Jack Mattel, the then VP of sales, why he wouldn't try to push past the 20,000 mark. And that would put him up there with eight ball by Bally. And he replied, we, we want to leave the market wanting more. So, I mean, this guy is like a, he's a proper shill, right? He's so salesy, like, uh, like that Zach mini fella. We'll have to leave them wanting more. So was, was Atari holding Richie back? Do you think he, they were holding him back? I think they just weren't a pinball company. They were a video game company that wanted to try to make pinballs. But, I mean, after Superman, and the other thing to remember here, Flash came out in January. Superman's not out yet. 
Yeah. It's, it doesn't come out till I believe March. So th- there is a weird period where he has Superman and Flash are both out simultaneously for two different companies that are both his game. That's got to be so embarrassing for Atari. Uh, I don't think the designers weren't really known that they didn't have like their names on the play field. So then no one, there were, there were no pinheads then that were like, Oh my God, this is a Steve Ritchie game. Oh my God. I don't think they even knew half the designers were, they weren't written on the games at that point. But the thing is Atari just made Hercules after that, which was more of a novelty game really than anything which is the you know, largest pinball game ever that has... That's uh, the one that's super huge. Yeah, that has super like a huge. Q-ball, Q-ball, Q-ball is... The, yeah. And that was their last pinball game, and then that was it. Then they just stuck with they just stuck with video games and the consoles. So I'll tell you, one of the coolest bits of Flash, is, I mean, besides the mechanics, like if we go beyond sort of the Steve Ritchie design, it's got to be the art, right? Like, it is hardcore turn of the 70s into the 80s right like there is some serious serious 80s hair going on here with this with with the back glass it is something else uh yeah some nudity too it's it's uh oh well what ron is alluding to here is down on the plastic it's the left slingshot plastic there's I, I like to dub this one the nipple plastic because yes. there's there's like these little nubs that go on to hold the art plastic over the mechanics and it's strategically placed kind of right on this woman's chest. Like this is not a machine that's going to be made here in the next couple of years. Like it was a different world back then in the seventies. And to translate what you said, the plastic that goes over the post, the acorn nut covers up the uh, offending area. It's strategically placed right over the, the female characters sort of uh, nipply bits. It's the thing is, I don't think most people don't seem to like that art package. For whatever reason, it, it's I, I mean, I think it's a cool art package. I don't think it's amazing. I, it's just so unreal. Yeah, compared it's to very everything. recognizable, though, when you see that back glass. Yeah, it definitely stands out in the crowd. So it had some curb appeal. I'll tell you that. So we have Flash, this huge success. It's out. We have Superman, which is Atari's best selling game. It's also out at the same time as these two games are out. Williams. They come up to Steve Ritchie because companies like Bally are making wide body games, games like Paragon. Everybody loves a wide body, right? Everyone loves a wide body. Everyone loves like Paragon, Future Spa. They're making these type wide body games. And Williams, there, we, we want a wide body. And who better to design a wide body than our new hotshot designer who at Atari did two wide bodies? This is perfect. Yeah. I mean, this guy's got the golden touch, right? If you're going to get somebody to build the machine, you, you know, that, you, that you've got this vision for, it's going to be Steve Ritchie. Yeah. So what game did he make? Well, let's get into the Stellar Stats. Oh, yes, the no. Stellar Stats. So Stellar Wars was his next game. It's a space sci-fi war theme. It's from March of 1979. It is a solid-state Williams System 4 board set. It's a wide body. It sold 5,503 units, sound and software by Paul Dussault. Dussault? Sounds good. Yeah, good enough. Artwork by, oh, Jesus, how do you say this again? Constantino. Constantino and Janine Mitchell. So uh, we're getting together here. What it, What do you think is this? Is the follow-up to Flash, Ron? Was this Was this the knockout punch? Um, It's a Star Wars ripoff. 100%. It's Stellar yep. Wars instead of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And according to Steve Ritchie, he said it wasn't fun for me to make. 
I had done flash in seven months. They begged me to do a wide body, so I did it. As it turns out, 5,500 units sold. I'd love to sell 5,500 units of Spider-Man today. I put it together in six months, and when it came out, it was a top earner with Flash in the arcades, but I didn't know why. That's uh, – how – how what an amazing thing for Steve Ritchie to say. So this is 2007. This is way, way out of the future. And he's like, I, I just put 10 pounds of crap in a five-pound bag, and I sold 5,000 units. Uh, like, it's amazing. I have spoke to him about this game. It, one of the things he really was bothered with this game, and if you've ever played it, Actually, I don't think you've played it, but the the plunge shot, you plunge the ball up into lanes. Right. You know, typical, that's a lot of games like that. But if you plunge it hard enough, it will actually go past the lanes and comes around like a U-turn through a spinner and yep. goes almost right down the middle. Ooh. So if you plunge super hard, it'll literally go up and then right back down. So usually there's like these gates at the top, right? Like yeah, these no, little this one goes. Things. This one goes all the way around. And in hindsight, he said that was dumb. He was not happy that... He didn't think that was a good idea, looking back at it. That was one thing he would change about the play field. Wow. But as far as the game, it's it's definitely one of the better Williams wide bodies because, honestly, most of their wide bodies, because they had the super wide bodies in, like, Pocorino. Right, right. And oh, what was the other one? Laser ball. A lot of them are just not that good. This one was probably this one was probably one of the better ones. I mean, one of the major issues with a wide body is that the that the ball just just goes and goes and goes and goes and it comes all the way back around to the flipper, and it 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 just feels like a long time for the ball to get around, right? So it's a different feel. It, they're not bad. They're just they're just different. Um, the, the funny thing about this is Steve Ritchie's not a fan of wide bodies. Oh well, no, well, because he he feels it it interferes with the flow. You can never you can never get the kind of kinetic flow th- that he likes in a wide body. It's very difficult because yeah. you have to put the shots when you put the shots so far out to the sides, it just hurts the overall design. Which is funny because he eventually did do one more wide body. But that's way in the future. That's way in the future. We're like a couple more episodes there, but uh, if you can guess what that super pin is that he made good for you i'm not going to give you anything for it so nothing at all nothing not even i'm not even going to recognize you on the show if you send us an email to uh silverballbag at gmail.com and you're like oh it was this game i'll be i'm not even going to respond to it and um i might read it i don't know i haven't probably won't even read it anyway what it you know what do you think of was stellar war stellar uh it made 5503 units and he sold a bunch of them it was it was a success, and this was the last of the three. So you had Stellar Wars, Flash, and Superman all in the top ten earners simultaneously, all from the same designer. Yeah. So I, I mean, I have seen a Stellar Wars for sale a few times. I do see them pop up from time to time when I'm kind of scouting out. You know, it did have, I would say, some very cool art as well. It's very, you know, square and blocky. It's kind of got almost like an old school. Uh, have you seen the old old Battlestar Galactica? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of got that kind of starshipy space thing going on. It was, I would say, it was very a very very cool machine. Um, it was probably the wide body bit that d- that did it in. I would say, if it were a standard body, it probably would have done well. One thing that's also pretty cool about that machine is it's got the pop bumpers. So it has three pop bumpers at the top. So traditionally, you'll 
you'll plunge the ball, it'll go up to the top and it'll fall down some 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 lanes on the top and into pop bumpers. That's sort of a almost a, a, a crutch of the industry. Well, it also has two pop bumpers way down the play field, right on the out lanes and the in lanes. It's right there in the bottom, which would, I'm sure, add a lot of chaos. And because it's Steve Ritchie, the flipper arrangement is still normal. Yes, of course. Which you would call normal, even on a wide body. So it has like ridiculously long in lanes. Yeah. Like go ball lane guides that go to the flippers. Yeah. So usually, usually on a wide body, what they do is they'll, they'll spread out those, those, um, those slings, right? They'll push them further out on the machine. They'll, or they'll have multiple flippers. But they'll move like the flippers around. Or do kinds of crazy, yeah, flipper stuff or have like four, four in lane out lanes on one side and all this kind of crazy yes. stuff. Yes. Steve was more of a, I want a kind of a standard bottom. I'll, I'll mix it up a bit when it comes to stuff above that standard bottom. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a neat machine. I, I say if you see one, put some, you know, Put some 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 coins in it, right? I mean, everybody loves. Try it out. They sold five thousand units. They can't totally suck. Yeah, it's got two spinners. I mean, come on, two spinners is I'm, awesome. I'm still waiting for the sequel. That's this next game. Yeah, so Stellar Wars two. What would what, what, what would the name of uh, of Stellar Wars two be? Uh, Stellar Wars two electric boogaloo. Stellar Wars two. Two stellar two wars. No. All right, on to the next game. All right, so at this point in Steve's career, I, I think he's he's getting into a bit of a groove. He kind of knows what he likes, what he doesn't like. You know, you're four games in, you're, you're coming up on your next one. Well, you know, you do know what his next game is, right? Uh, it's in my basement, so yes, I definitely know what his next game is. It's firepower, and um, you are firepower stats. Yes, it's a space sci-fi war theme. It basically another Star Wars ripoff. It has the Death Star in the center of the playfield. It's the Death Star. It's from February 1980. It's a uh, solid state. Again, these are all solid state games. He did not make any EMs. Williams System 6, which it pushed the boundaries of what System 6 could do. It's a standard body. 17,410 units. Another, another massive, massive. Massive seller. Software and sound by Eugene Jarvis. They got him. They got him from Atari. Speech by Paul DeSalt. And artwork again by Constantino and Janine Mitchell. Yeah, that's, um, I would say a couple of things stick out here. One, you know, what kind of, what kind of sales numbers did they have kind of in the late seventies and eighties? If you had a decent selling game, what were you selling? Like 3,000, 4,000? No, they had, they had games like Grand Prix in the mid seventies that sold like 10,000 units. But they they were, they didn't have a ton of those. Yeah, that was that was sort of the anomaly, right? Where it looks like Steve Ritchie's sellers are like the norm. This was also a like right before the video games, kind of the mid to late seventies, early eighties. You have a lot of ten thousand plus sellers in this before before everything crashes. Yeah, well, we'll get into that, I'm sure, in another episode. But one thing that you mentioned here was that they got Eugene Jarvis from Atari. So after Flash, Richie gets on the phone, he calls up Eugene, he says, Eugene, you have got to get over here. So Eugene was a part of the original negotiations back in early 79 to come from Atari over to Williams. But I mean, I mean, it was it was a big concern for Steve Ritchie just to pick up and move over, um, let alone Eugene. He didn't know it was going to work out. Plus, he, you know, he still had his commitments at Atari and a few other things. But, you know, now 
you know, Richie has gone to Williams. He's seen how the machine operates. You know, he's right in the heart of the coin op industry. And and he's calling up a guy that he knows is going to be a difference maker in Williams. And right out of the gate, you can see that their partnership has really paid dividends. Yes. Eugene Jarvis is literally a genius. He really got on the simplest level what coin op was. That's according to Chris Graner, legendary sound designer from Williams. Another interesting piece about Eugene is from Steve Kirk, who was originally at Stern Electronics, and uh, later he did a little bit at Williams. And he would actually call Eugene the Steven Spielberg of video games because his games were so popular among all types of players. We're talking advanced players, you know, casual players, tournament players. For some reason, Eugene understood coin up. He understood pinball. And he was able to really translate that into his partnership with Steve. And his sound system that he came up with for Firepower, they pretty much used for the next four to five years of of games. So he brought a bunch of things from, I would say, the mind of Eugene Jarvis that he just couldn't leverage at Atari for one reason or another. And he was able to make a big difference at Williams. And again, this is another pinball machine from Steve Ritchie with a bunch of firsts ever in pinball. One of those firsts is lane change. And Ron, I mean, I've only ever really known games with lane change, but what, you know, what was so mind blowing about lane change? Back in the day, if you needed to get in a certain lane, you had to nudge the game to try to get it in the lane. Yeah, so you would you would plunge the ball, it would go up to the top, and it would bounce around across some gates, and it would go in an A lane or a B lane, or, or later on it would spell words, and you couldn't move the lane that had the, the light on it, right? It, you would just have to nudge it to get it in. So Steve and Eugene just come up with this idea of, well, what if I move the lane? Yeah, this is another example. You have the, the designer and the programmer, and it was another Steve Ritchie just saying, hey, can we get this lane to move? And the programmer, Eugene Jarvis, saying like, uh, sure. You know, a couple hours later, there, it's moving. This is the first solid-state machine with three-ball multi-ball. Um, and there were EMs that had multi-ball. Is that right, Ron? There are lots of EMs that have multi-ball. Lots of them. That's another common fallacy. that Like, this is the first game with multi-ball. Yeah, so Steve didn't invent multi-ball. No, he, he just brought it to the solid-state era. Correct. Yeah. So it's also the first machine with what's called play field animation, which is basically flashing lights as the countdown for multiball happens. Uh, the the lights pulse, which is part of the code of the uh, System Six board sets. It's also the first machine with Steve Ritchie callouts. Can you tell me what a Steve Ritchie callout is? Fire, power. Like there's, I think it's 10 words on this, 10 or... So there's th- chips that's all they on the soundboard, yeah. right? And each chip has like one or two words. Because that's all they could fit on there. And they were expensive. Right. So you had to then use those words differently, right? So you could say the, fire, power, you, and then you could just jam that together to make sentences. To make a sentence. And they would do... And if... On those systems, they had a um, sound test, and it would go through all the words, which is funny in itself. You know, power, fire, destroyed, you, it, it, it's it's pretty funny. Yeah, so so what, like, Steve Ritchie did the call-outs for this machine, right? They didn't just hire, you know, nope. a professional this first, actor. This was the first one, and it would 
began a long career of doing voices for his games, other people's games, video games. Um, he's, he's just very good at this, always has been. And on this particular game, they did do some modification. They, he did it like in a monotone voice, and they did a little... They did a little effect on it, but you can see, I played so many Steve Ritchie games. I can now just, I can hear his voice <laughs> when, when I hear this, it's like, Oh, that's Steve Ritchie. I think it's so cool that he's just like, yeah, I'll do the voice for that. And he's almost always the bad guy. He loves being the bad guy. Yeah. And I, I when we get into our next episode with Steve Ritchie further on sort of uh, along our podcast journey here, we'll get into sort of some of the other voices he's done and some of the innovations within that, which is pretty cool. Now, this is the second machine with speech. It's not the first machine with speech. That was Gorgar, which had seven words, which, had which seven I never words. can remember what they all are. Yeah. Beat you, me, Gorgar. So if, if, if you if anyone out there knows what the seven words are, where can they send that? Yeah, if, if you know what the seven words in Gorgar were, you can send that to silverballbag at gmail.com, and I won't read it out on the air. Okay. All right, good. I don't have any prizes to give away. I can't get anything free to give away at all, Wait, ever. Really? The Pinball Network won't give us anything? They will not give us any. I don't even think they have shirts yet. It's that bad. Oh, man. I know they don't have the domain. Oh, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. Wah, wah. I'm sorry. Uh, One thing I wanted to bring up about this. Yeah, please, go ahead. The biggest deal about Firepower is the feature when you start multi-ball, the game literally stops and gives you a full light show, dancing, dancing. It does a countdown on the display, you know, adrenaline pumping countdown, and the flashers go off. This has flashers in it also. It's two, two flashers. And it, it just, it, in the speech, you know, fire one, fire two, fire three. This began Williams, this is how Williams would do multi-ball. It became an event, right? It was like a... Yes, it was, like it was an event. event. They trademarked the term, so no one else could use it, at least for quite a while. And when you get a multi-ball, it, it is literally an event. And the other manufacturers, with some exceptions, did not really take this approach like if you're playing something like Fathom, which is a game from Bally, you start multi-ball, it'll say attack diver, and it just releases the balls. Yeah, there's no there's no pageantry, there's no there's, excitement. There's no, I mean, there's some exceptions. I'll say things like um, like Xenon yeah. will do a little a light show and say you know exit one, exit two. But for the most part, Williams was the only one that that told their their player like this is a big deal, and even. Even in their lean years, in the early 80s, it didn't matter. If you started multiball, you were going to get some kind of light show. You were going to get some kind of presentation to let you know something cool was about to happen. Yeah, it was It was almost like the reward for getting something. You really, you really got to feel like you were in there, that you yeah. were part of it. Very, very cool. Yeah. Very and cool. just as my opinion, they're the only ones who got that right. The other manufacturers just didn't. They didn't treat. They just treated it as you have multiple balls in play. Yeah, the, the reward was like that a, you got more points. The reward was uh, we're releasing more balls. Yeah, here and, you go. And I, I would say what's particularly kind of cool about this is, I mean, nowadays, later on in the '80s, when you would get you know multiple balls on the playfield, you know, usually that would turn into some sort of multiplier. So your so each switch would be multiplied by two or three. Well, there wasn't enough room on the board because Eugene Jarvis had pushed that board set really to the brink and they couldn't build in a multiplier. So when you get multi-ball, that is the reward. 
Yeah, your reward is there's no multiplier. Here's the blinking. Here's the excitement. There's no jackpot, which that would come later. It's just you have multiball. This is cool. Yeah, I think probably. I mean, I I certainly was not around in the 1980s when this machine came out, but it, it must have been it must have been unreal. And and I think part of that was that it took dynamic background sound and i think really really turned up the dial on that and uh sean ledgerwood he wrote into silverballbag at gmail.com just like you can and talked about the firepower sound package well sean says firepower was the second machine i ever owned and spent hours trying usually unsuccessfully to get multiball the pulsing music that got faster and faster adding to the excitement of the game making you more and more nervous by the second fantastic we thought we were on top of the pinball world. Uh, Ron, have you ever heard of uh, uh, Firepower with drop targets? Yes, I have. Yeah, so this is something I saw when I was looking this up. So I guess originally when they looked at making Firepower, the way that that game is designed, kind of halfway up the play field, there's these stand-up targets, these round targets, and you hit them and that ball comes back at your flippers really, really quickly. Well, Originally, Steve wanted to have those as as two sets of three bank drop targets. So a drop target, you shoot the target and it it clicks and it goes down below the play field. You sort of get this visual excitement. Uh, it disappears. You've done something. Um, unfortunately, uh, they were unreliable, or as Steve said, that they were so crappy that they were making the game unreliable. And he reckons that if they had actually put drop targets in the machine, they probably would have sold 20,000. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I actually think it plays better with the stand-ups. Okay. Drop targets, I think it would kill the momentum, and it wouldn't play as wild. The thing is, he, he was legitimately upset about that. But really? They, they put it on test, and it, they just broke. They were terrible. Williams used what's called they were called the horseshoe drop targets. They weren't shaped like a horseshoe, but the switches on the back of them were shaped like a horseshoe, and they were just notoriously flaky because they all each drop target would have like almost like a mini little circuit board behind it okay yeah and they were just very unreliable as far as registering and they they were quite terrible some of the worst drop targets you will ever see so they went to the stand-ups so i i mean maybe steve is upset about that and, and his true vision was drop downs but in my opinion i i think what you lose on sort of the visual excitement and, and everybody loves drop targets shooting those. There's just, there's for some reason, they're just fun. Um, I, I think it's a better game because of it actually. Agreed. What, uh, uh, what do you, so were you around when, when firepower came out? Were you in the arcade scene at the time or do you remember seeing them? I would have been too young to see above the glass. So I wouldn't have been playing any firepower. So uh, William Ratchford wrote in to silverballbag at gmail.com, just like you can, and he spoke about the amusement company that he used to work for, and he actually went to a Williams Distributor open house where he won a door prize. And by winning the door prize, you were able to actually buy a Williams Firepower for $1,000 that day. So what I find particularly interesting about this story is that there was a demonstration by the sales team. And rather than, you know, usually what a sales team would do is they would put the machine out and they would tell you about the new drop, drop targets, this, or the, you know, look at the earnings potential of that. But the sales team actually spent the entire time playing the game. It was that much fun. And they didn't really let any of the other reps play the game. 
Williams says that they took that machine right from a show and they put it into a bar and it took in $300 and quarters in seven days. And that's 25 cents a play. How about that? That's what you call a winner. So, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, you want it to earn. And this was a sure fire win. So how do you follow up firepower? Do, do you think he has another miss? Do you think he, do you think he pulls out a stellar worse? Uh, well, st- again, Stellar Wars sold 5,000 units. It was not a miss. Instead, he pulls out Innovation by making the first bi-level pinball machine. Yeah, we're talking about Black Friggin' Knight. Two levels of fun. Not just one play field. Two play fields. Double the fun. And I'm sure someone will write in and tell us that it's not the first bi-level game, but as far as I know, it is. I'll tell you what. Like, uh, this, this is one of the games that um, I enjoy. I don't love the game, but when I see it, I'm like, wow, that's kind of a, that's, that's, that's pretty innovative. It's very, very different. And I can only imagine what it was like in a sea of sameness where something like this just sort of just rises to the top. So this is from November, 1980. It is utilizing actually the first game to utilize Williams system seven board set. And the first game to use their new drop targets there are much better drop targets, and it's a good thing because this game has 12 of them. It's actually standard width, but with two play fields. Sold 13,075 units. The sound was by John Co- okay, Kotlarik. Sorry, sorry, did, John. Sorry, John. He also did Pharaoh. Uh, software by Larry DeMar. It was the Larry DeMar of Adams Family, World Cup Soccer. Yeah. A legendary, legendary designer. We'll do a whole other thing on him, yeah. Of Adams Family, World Cup Soccer, Jackpot, and Funhouse fame. The artwork was by Tony Ramuni. Ramuni? I'm probably saying that totally wrong. He also did Alien Poker. Yeah, just, just get a better last name. <laughs> Special Force, Spy Hunter, 8-Ball Champ. There's a good game. Speech by Steve Ritchie. It would be, once again, the voice of the Black Knight himself. Uh, this was his first outing with Larry DeMar, first of two outings. He was They were two for two, I'd like to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They did not get along particularly well. That's why they did not work together more times, because you would think after this game, you would want them to work together more. Absolutely. Actually, you would think after Firepower, they'd want to work with Eugene Jarvis more, but Eugene went more into the video side after Firepower. Yeah, so I, guess, I mean, you can really see that um... – uh, you know, passion is a funny thing, right? And and unless you can get that to mesh together, uh, passion and and working with individuals, you know, that can cause issues. And and I think as as much as Larry Demar and Steve Ritchie are probably friendly and nice, you know, when you get working together, you're in close quarters, you're you're under time constraints, uh, you want to do things. And the designer or the software guy or gal doesn't want to do those. You know, I, I think that that causes some friction. But in oftentimes, that sort of friction can really create magic. And in this case, it created a bunch of firsts. This is the first bi-level play field, two play fields. First machine with the patented Magnusay feature. And the most exciting, the first machine with faceted inserts in the playfield. What is a faceted insert? Oh, well, I hope everybody is sitting down here because when you're talking about Steve Ritchie's biggest innovations, 
it certainly has to be faceted inserts on the play field. And I mean, in a nutshell, what that is, is it's a, it's a clear insert or it's a, an insert you can see through and it's kind of got like jeweling or cuts or, or, or designs on the bottom that sort of sparkle a little bit when you hit it with light. It's, um, it's something that keeps me up at night. It's so exciting. Uh, yes, I, I've been told. I actually found an old article from a, an old coin op sort of magazine called Play Meter, and this is uh, from the nineteen from the uh, sorry from the from the late seventies. The interview with Sam Stern, and in there he says that you can't do a two level play field. That a two level play field will not exist. So. His thing was that you can't get the ball to roll quite right. You can't get the 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 returns to the play field correctly. And I think that's pretty funny because, you know, Steve Ritchie didn't come up with the idea of a two-level play field all kind of on his own. He was just the one to, to do it first and do it, I would say, really, really, really well. As Steve Ritchie says, everything about the design was a headache. The biggest problem was ball clearance under the upper playfield and placement of components so that the ball never struck any of the components hanging below the playfield. It was also a bitch to get the ball time down because once the ball went up in the upper playfield, it would not come down in the original design. I believe that many designers have had the idea. I'm just the guy who executed it. It was an obvious idea. He was able to execute, and and really that's the big difference maker, is that, that he was able to sort of spend the time and the energy and really come up with a way to do it. Caleb Ball, he wrote in, just like you can, to silverballbag at gmail.com, and he said, Black Knight was my first solid-state machine. I had one other machine at the time, an unplayable basket case EM, and my wife suggested I buy another machine. God bless her, Caleb. So I got... This Project Black Knight for a screaming deal and have been tinkering and playing it ever since. I love that it is a popular title and has a lot of variety in shots and playfield features. It can be extremely frustrating and challenging to play. Would you classify this as extremely frustrating and challenging? Um, I guess so. It, yeah, it can, be, the, it can be frustrating when it leaves the upper playfield and just goes right down the middle. And Black Knight is known to have on the apron, right in between the flippers on almost every Black Knight, you'll notice the, the metal's pushed up from the ball going airborne as it goes down the middle. It'll hit the uh, little biff bar that's behind the, the flipper, and it just goes airborne and hits the actual apron over and over again. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I respect Black Knight. Like, I understand what it is. I, I know it's a great game. I understand the history and excitement behind it, but when I get down to actually playing it, you know, I just, I can't quite get the feel of up to the upper play field and, and flipping the the third flipper that's up there and, you know, trying to get the targets and get that, that, that loop it. And then the ball coming down and, and right down to the flippers and have to be right on it. Like I like hard games. Um, I, I, I enjoy sort of the challenge of, of difficult shots and returns, but there's just something about sort of that old black Knight. It just doesn't, just doesn't do it for me, but some people, wow. Uh, yeah. The one down in my basement says, yes, Ron likes it. It has one of my favorite shots in pinball, which is ball goes down the right in lane, hit it up the lit left spinner, which is the ramp comes around to the upper left flipper. Straight to the lock. That's a that's flow shot personified. That's everything that is Steve Ritchie is in that shot. 
the and the other thing is about that game that that always bothered Steve Ritchie is the fact that Williams used 25 volt coils as opposed to Bally and Gottlieb who are using 50 volt coils. So those are those are stronger flippers. 50 volt coils, it? yeah, yeah, the 50 volts are stronger and he really wished that they had the 50 volt coils on that game because of the ramps. Because if you've ever played a Black Knight, especially maybe at a pinball show in a low power situation with weak flippers, it is entirely unfun to play. So is this the is this the type of machine that if you were to buy one and you take it home and you're super excited, uh, you know, going on to like a Pinball Life website and buying a flipper rebuild kit is probably a good idea? Um, yeah, especially if you can't make the ramps. Good stuff. What? Let's talk about Magna Save. This is a this is a pretty big innovation for this machine, right? Yeah, this was not done before, to my knowledge. Um, basically, you have extra flipper buttons, or extra buttons on either side above where the flipper button is. You hit it if if it's lit, so you have to light your magna save. So it is a little skill based. If you complete a drop target bank, it lights one of the magna saves. You don't get one for free. You have to do something. And when the ball comes over there, if you hit the magnet, it will stop the ball dead for a predetermined amount of time, which is in the settings, and then it will release it into the in-lane safely for your next shot. So do you love it or you hate it? I like the Magna save. I don't like that implementation as much as Williams in future games, like Jungle Lord, Solar Fire, other, um, like Grand Lizard, where they would use a Magna save. They would use a different method where it doesn't hold the ball. It's just like a pulse. And you get so many pulses, which you can build ah, up. Okay. So you hit the button, and, and you have to time it. And, and maybe you have to hit it more than once to get a couple pulses in. But it's a lot more fun, in, in, in my opinion. So, so the idea is that underneath the play field, by the outlanes, there's, there's literally a magnet under there, right? There's large circular magnets. The play field is actually cut, so it's recessed into the play field. Okay. And then you hit the button, and, and of course the ball is metal, and it sort of, I guess, more or less sticks to that. Now, surely that would create a lot of wear over the time, right? Uh, mine actually has decals in both magnesave areas because the, the paint is completely worn away. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. I, I like the magnesave. I think it's very, very cool. One thing that I always end up having an issue with is I'll, I'll save it or I'll try to save it, and it wiggles a little bit and it still goes out the outline. You must be playing it at a show. Yeah, and I and I'm a bad player, maybe. That has nothing to do with it. That's weak power. That's that's another thing about when you have magnets like that, it is very susceptible to low power conditions, especially at a show. I can't tell you how many times I played Black Knight at a show and you, you hit the, the magnet save and it just wobbles. Like like and you're just and you're waiting for the magnet to go off and you're you're oh please don't go in the outlay. Please don't go in the outlay. Ugh. Uh, anything else you want to you want to throw into Black Knight? Other than that was my first game I've ever I ever got. Oh. I still have it. Fair. So it's the first game that you purchased and it's and the exact one that you have is still downstairs. It's still downstairs in spot number 1, specifically for that reason. But it's literally the first game you see when you go down to my basement is is that one and that's why it's there. That was 2004 I got it. Williams has this designer, right? Steve Ritchie, everything the man touches turns to gold, right? Like, he, it's like he can do no wrong. So what do they give him next? Well, unfortunately, video games took over. Yeah. Pinball took a hit. So there was kind of a a little shift. Towards the end of 81, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing to remember, 
And just to give a little background for our listeners, Eugene Jarvis, who we mentioned a lot, he went to he went to design a game called Defender, which you may or may not have heard of. And that was an arcade game, and it was a humongous, huge, massive hit. Made Williams a ton of money. So around that time, after that game, a lot of the programmers, like Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar, this would be after, after um, Black Knight, they decided, you know what, we should make video games. We'll leave Williams. So they all left Williams and, and Mass. Oh, no. And formed their own company called VidKids. Then came back to Williams and said, hey, we'll make video games for you. Thus getting paid a lot more. Wow. And made games like Star, uh, Stargate, games like Robotron, you know, classics like that. If you look at those games, you'll see Vid Kids, you know, made by Vid Kids, but it was basically like Eugene Jarvis. So there's like a, there's Carr. a flux going on right so now. So there's a there's a flux game. going. They're doing the video games now. So the pinball division now is getting hit hard. So what does Steve Ritchie do? Well, he makes Hyperball. And what's Hyperball? Well, let's start let's start with uh with the hyper stats. So Hyperball uh is a I have uh, no idea what the theme is. I have no what the theme. I, I have no idea. I want to say like space. I have no idea. The back, glass, the back glass doesn't even really light up. I always think it's broken and then it'll occasionally flash. Like, oh, it does work. Okay. So, I mean, it's made in December of 1981. It's a solid state machine, Williams System 7. It's a special Williams System 7. It, it's There's something different with the board that's only for Hyperball. Mm-hmm. It's standard body. They sold 5,000 units. So, again... Still sold. Now, the sound was by Tim Murphy, and it's the only thing he's ever done in pinball, or at least he's been credited for. And the software was by Ed... So, shit. Ed Sakochi? Sounds good. He's uh, he's from Solar Fire, a Sorcerer Grand Lizard, and the artwork by Seamus McLaughlin. And uh, he did Pharaoh, Warlock, and, and a couple others for Williams. So, uh... I know the listeners at home can't see our our notes that I have here, but I have bolded what a turd. <laughs> uh, it it was an attempt to kind of combine, I guess you would say, combine some video game elements like shooting things with a pinball element, as in they're like little mini pinballs. They're not as big as pinballs, but there is a hyper cannon. A cannon that shoots up to 250 balls per minute at targets located all around the playfield. There's no flippers. Alphanumeric display in the lower playfield. And it's extremely confusing about what the heck you're doing. I have played this game. Typically, it involves the game starts, and within 30 seconds, the game will say, condition critical, and then and then it'll go dead, and the game's over. Well, that sounds like so much fun. I could never figure out what to do on this game i think it involves spelling but involves something else well ever you know the one thing that kids love in arcades one of it is no time on the machine and spelling spelling yeah and my podcast mate from slam to podcast my other podcast replug bruce he is the only person i know who knows how to play this game who can play it for more than 30 seconds uh, to be to be totally honest, he knows way more about pinball than I do. He knows more about fixing pinball. He knows way more about the rules than I do. So Andrew uh, Latham wrote, just like you can, to silverballbag at gmail.com. Here's what he had to say about Hyperball. 
Hi, Ronster and Davo. I don't know what's with these people in these names. Hyperball. How can you not remember the opening sound? A pinball machine that wasn't. I sat in front of the machine for hours as a kid. Thanks for bringing back the memories. So he has good memories of Hyperball? I guess so, but I mean... So the initial sales forecast for Hyperball were 50,000 units. They thought they had just (laughs) the biggest hit of all time. They were playing this thing at Williams, and they're like, this... This is the cat's ass. What actually happened? They only sold 5,000. So what are they going to do with all those cabinets they made for it? Well, (laughs) through my research when I was doing some things, it was obvious that they were not going to sell 50,000 units pretty quick. But they had already made the order for all these cabinets. And it had like this kind of unusual cabinet, right? It was like a – it was almost like a – the. The back box, which is the part of the back of the machine where usually nowadays there's an LCD display. There used to be a DMD display or or alpha numerics back in the in the 80s. They had sort of speakers on the bottom and the back glass on the top. And they had it was it was unusual, right? It wasn't like your standard back box. And they had ordered so many of these that they just had them piled around the Williams area. So they actually had to use these excess back boxes, right? So they put them on other games like the Pinball Defender, Time Fantasy, and Firepower 2. They just they just had to get rid of these things. So when you find those machines, they actually look a little bit different than everything else, right? Yes, and the other funny thing is this game, Hyperball, right? Bally, Williams' competitor, they got wind of this game that was being made, so they came up with their own version of it, like a direct ripoff called Rapid Fire. Oh, God. Which also uses a different cabinet. And had the same result, i.e. it didn't sell anything. And they had the same issue, i.e. we have all these extra cabinets. So they decided to use them for, they had the Centaur Limited Edition, they called it, and they used it. They used them for that. And then they had the 8-Ball Deluxe Limited Edition, and they used them for that. Oh. So very, very similar results in both cases. What is, so Steve, what does Steve think about Hyperball? What does Steve Ritchie think about Hyperball? He says, Hyperball was a frustrated pinball guy seeing the market taper off because video was taken over. I lost Eugene to video. There were space invaders. Eugene made Defender. I wanted to make a video game, but they wouldn't let me. It was a machine gun game. Haven't you always wanted to shoot a machine gun? How do I feel about it now? It was our fault for delaying so long to get it to market. It's their fault for not doing something original. It was an experiment. It was fun. I don't think it was a failure. You can really hear that Steve Ritchie wanted to do something different. He came up with an original idea, and he people came up crap with the on it. Loudest right? game of all time. If you've ever <laughs> been around a hyperball, it is the loudest game you will ever play. It's. I just. I've never played one. I have seen one for oh, sale. You never played one. Oh, okay. I've seen one for sale, and it was so confusing just to look at. And I mean, I'm in this to play pinball, right? If I want to play video games, I'll play video games. If I want to play pinball, I'll play pinball. So so what does Steve Ritchie, the best young designer, I would say, of all time in the pinball industry at this point, with a mind that turns out almost nothing but innovations, what does he do now? Uh, he leaves pinball. Why would he do that? He wanted to do video games. Well, because because everybody's going to do video Everyone games, right? Everyone else is doing video games. So he started his own company, King Video Design. Of course it's King Video Design, because that sounds like very Steve Ritchie. Yes, and he worked for years on a game called Devastator. Okay. Which was going to be like a it was gonna be like a 3D video game. I don't think it ever made it. I, th- I think the, the video game market crashed 
and I don't I don't believe it was ever released. So his timing was very bad. He moves into video and he actually innovates there as well, right? So this uh, this game he's working on, Devastator, has this interesting bit that's called automated conversion of videotaped color images, which basically turns objects into a video game system, which sounds super impressive and I have no idea what it does. But, you know, he just continues to innovate. He just turns out all these ideas. And that's the thing, too. I, I think it needs to be clear to our listeners. I know Steve Ritchie now, he's, he's going to be actually his birthday's coming up from our recording day. He's going to turn 70. And when people refer to a lot of his games now, it's like it's a Steve Ritchie layout. It's like, you know, very similar. Everything's always very similar. I, I think people need to realize that when he came into the industry and, and we're going to go into this more into the future episode and some of his System 11 games, he was all about innovation. All his games would always have some kind of super innovative or new feature on them. And I think that kind of gets lost in his, his designs he does today. Yeah, I think Richie gets a lot of heat now. But... He gets a lot of heat now because, oh, it's the same thing. It's the same. It's a Steve. You know where all the shots are going to be before you even play it, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of that, honestly, a lot of that is warranted. He has repeated and recycled a lot of his playfield ideas, but you cannot take away the innovation that he created, especially early in his career. Yeah, well, I, I mean, as I had said, I'm I'm only a couple of years into the hobby. I'm I'm not as deep in as as you, and I'm sure some of the listeners here on the Pinball Network who have been around much longer than you and I, you know, you can't take away from Steve Ritchie that in every single one of the machines in his early career that we've looked at today. He has just innovated and innovated and innovated and come up with unique ways to interact with the ball in in a in a in a structure where you've just moved into solid state. Like, how do you imagine new things? So if you sit back today and you're like, oh, I want to do this with the ball, like everything that I would tell you right now, Ron, is something that's already been done because I just don't have the mind to think about how to bend a ball around a play field. It's amazing. And wait till we get to our next episode where we go into some of probably some of his greatest games ever, in my opinion. It's System 11 era, but I'm biased. Yeah, so we're going to go into System 11 and uh, his Williams uh, WPC era. And what does that stand for? Williams Pinball Controller. And there's some exciting stuff to come up in there, Ron. Lots of exciting stuff. Yeah, we're going to see some super innovative designs, innovative new features. Sound. As sound. We're going to see because the video game market kind of crashed, the pinball market almost died, but then started to come back. And as it started to come back, they started putting more money into it, more innovation, more new things, better and better games. And that's all going to be coming up in our next Steve Ritchie episode. That's right. So what we're going to do is we're going to sprinkle a few of these Steve Ritchie episodes along as we continue out. Hey, Ron, what do, you, what do you think of our first episode? How do you think this went? Super informative. I learned all kinds of new things. That's right. Now, I'm sure you've taken a lot of notes, and you're going to go home and study everything oh, we've tons done. Tons of notes, yes. So, I mean, I think, I think we've done fairly well for our first episode. Uh, you know, two guys have never met. Um, I'm just in, in my office here chatting to a random voice in, in headphones on a microphone, and, and I think it's worked out really well. I think we have a cool, interesting topic. And uh, our podcast is a little bit different than everybody else's. It's going to be different. Um, say if you were a longtime pinhead, maybe try to direct some newbies to this podcast. 
because it's it's really it's I'd say it's more for them than it is for someone because there's people out there I'm sure listening is like I already know that I already know that but a, a lot of newer people in the hobby don't know a lot of this and it's it's just an effort when David came to me with this this idea I I did and I don't know if David knows this one of the things I used to do for years is I would do a lot of uh, walkthrough videos of various shows and locations with the thought that of preserving this in case it goes away. And a lot of places have gone away. Like, you know, the pop, the old Papa facility is no longer there. There's other arcades and locations that are no longer in existence that I've gone through just trying to save, you know, it's to preserve the history of a pinball as best I can. So I, that's what I kind of think of these, these podcasts as, because a lot, a lot of like Steve Ritchie is obviously still alive and kicking and making games, but you know, one day he'll be gone and hopefully there'll be this fountain of information out there exactly. for people to look into. That's more centralized because I mean, how many sources do you have to go to? How many 15 years of podcasts and interviews did you have to look at to find this information? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been through a lot of, uh, I've been through a lot of recordings and a lot of old, old uh, PDFs that I found online and, and things like that. And what we're doing here as a team, collating all those together and having a discussion and and really preserving that as, as a testament to somebody as amazing in, in this episode of Steve Ritchie. I think that that's a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah. And just thanks, David, for having me. Uh, thanks to Dennis Creasel for recommending me. Of course. And Dennis Creasel is the uh, producer seducer of this uh, podcast. So thank you to Dennis Creasel of the Pinball Network and Eclectic Gamers podcast. Ron, if uh, people wanted to hear more about you or reach out to you, how do they do that? Uh, well, I have another podcast, which is, um, I would say, completely different than this one. It tends to be a little on the juvenile, silly side and um, a little bit more um, R-rated, as we do have the maturity rating on on ours. This is this is more professional, Ron. If you want to hear a lot less professional, Ron, you can tune into the Slam Till podcast, which if you just do a Google search on the Slam Till podcast or go to slamtillpodcast.com, you will see all our episodes there. All the links are there. Email, everything is there. Slam Tilt was the first podcast that I started listening to. And um, I still listen to it whenever it pops out the minute. I have it actually on auto-download. That's You're on the auto-download list. That's how important that podcast is. Incredible. You, you listen to us first and you're still into pinball. You haven't been scared away. It's true. It's true. I've, I've certainly learned um, what to stay away from. I'm not very good at self-promotion. But look for a new episode coming out. Some, sometime soon. Yeah, so uh, I'm David Dennis, and if you would like to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at uh, silverballbag at gmail.com. And I'm Ron Hallett, and you've been listening to the Silverball Chronicles. See you next time. Remember to email us your comments, questions, corrections, or concerns to silverballbag at gmail.com. We look forward to all the messages, and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher, and turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. Remember to leave us a five-star review so others can find us. You can send us your comments, questions, corrections, or concerns at our mailbag at the silverballbag at gmail.com. 
There's too many bags there. <laughs> I got to do that differently. Um, There's so many bags on our podcast. <laughs>